Welcome to A Pot Upon a Hill. I'm Mr. Vasiliadis. I'm Mr. Koblen. Today we are covering the Civil War, 1861 to Okay, so today we're going to talk about the Civil War and some of the social, economic, and political changes that under undergo uh, during this very brief four-year conflict. Um, the war begins, uh, as mentioned before, in 1861 with an attack on Fort Sumner. Uh, Lincoln will use executive authority immediately. He will call for 750,000 soldiers, he will authorize spending of war efforts, and he will suspend a thing called the privilege and the writ of habeas corpus. Yes, and as we know, habeas corpus, Latin, when we talked about the uh, Bill of Rights earlier in the year, habeas corpus is for the presentation of the body, meaning that no one can be thrown in jail and left there right. forever. You have a right to have your day in court. He suspends this, and it, the president has that authority to do this when in, uh, situations arise for national security or in wartime like we are in at this present moment. So the thing that people can use against Lincoln is that he, when he does these things, Congress happens to not be in session. So you have a, an argument made that he's abusing his power because there's no ability for Congress to check it at that, that moment. This comes up later on when we talk about some abuses of civil liberties during this time of war. Right, and also this kind of extends to other type of conflicts in American history. There's a running theme that typically executive power is heightened um, at the expense of civil liberties due to its quick and expedient nature. In other words, you want leaders to make quick and effective decisions without the you know, uh, me meandering uh, process that democracy brings. So Yeah, I mean, to debate every single decision, more time is wasting time. Right. Eisenhower even said it's better to make a quick decision than to delineate to make the best decision. Right. Um, so uh, the other thing, when we get to sece uh, the secession of those southern states, the first half, the Cotton South secedes before he takes office, before the war actually starts. Right. The Upper South secedes, Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, and Arkansas all out. This one region of western and uh, northwestern Virginia, though, remains loyal to the Union. And that's why in 1863, West Virginia is created. But those border states remain in, under the control of the Union, where Lincoln uh, declares martial law, where the government is in complete control and the military is in control of Delaware, Maryland, Missouri, and Kentucky. It's strategic importance largely because of the population in these territories and preventing a keeping a buffer from the South to enter into the North. And this provides a conundrum for the Lincoln administration because, you know, it makes it very difficult for him to frame the narrative of the war to free slaves when, in fact, a lot of these border states are um, they have high populations of slaves themselves. So keep in mind that Lincoln's strategy is to keep the Union together. So he doesn't want to alienate these border states or scare them away to the Confederacy. So he will do everything he can to kind of appeal to their interests, which is, you know, the, the harsh truth uh, that we find 
Lincoln in during this time. So as we talk about any wartime conflict, we have to think about the tale of the tape. The North clearly had significant advantages right. in population, in the fact that the military that is um, the government has at its disposal, the United States Army and the Navy, in addition to the fact that almost all of our industries are in the North. You have 85% of the factories, 70% of railroads, 65% of farmland. So resources, the ability to move uh, goods, services, and soldiers, as well as production, is really going to be a major advantage for the Northern government. Most importantly, though, might be the fact that they had a strong central government for the reasons why Mr. V just mentioned. You need quick decisions to be made. The presidency is something that is necessary in these moments. The commander of chief is a great um, asset. And that becomes the irony of states' rights. Now, the South also has some attributes and like advantages as well. They can um, argue that this war is a defensive one. Uh, they, owe, they have less ground to cover. Um, they're, they have a long indented coastline, which makes it very difficult to blockade by the enemy. And they could ultimately wait for Lincoln's ef efforts to fail out of political favor for a truce. They, again, don't need to convince their people to continue fighting. Where in the North, Lincoln has to deal with war Democrats, uh, Copperhead Democrats, uh, moderate Republicans. There's a lot of competing political factions that are going to do everything they can to kind of end the war as quickly as possible. Confederates can just simply uh, tell their, their people, this is a war for our liberty. This is a war for, uh, you know, state rights. And this is very, very, very good for boosting the morale. In terms of international support, Great Britain seems to kind of be interested in giving aid in exchange for cotton that could be proved useful. And this this kind of uh, arrangement will be later known as cotton diplomacy, utilizing some sort of contact with Great Britain um, for the support of the Confederate side in exchange for giving them some cotton. So the Confederate States of America are created, and we should briefly mention some of the highlights of their um, ideas that helped them in this uh, secession. So they're basically a model off of our own Constitution, but there are a few things that stand out. One specifically is the item veto, president has a longer term, and obviously the power to levy tariffs is something they were always very concerned about, so right. they denied Congress that ability. And President Jefferson Davis is the person who tries to centralize power as the war effort goes on, but the southern governors resist. So the stubbornness of those southern states to say that any central power will ever have the opportunity to tell them what to do ends up backfiring, and that's the irony we mentioned earlier, that their beliefs are the one of the major things that made them unable to have uh, a victory. And because they're very resistant to the idea of like a national banking system, because of like their agrarian industries, the CSA is going to be cash poor. They're going to be constantly short of money. They're going to try some loans and income taxes, but government issues will be over $1 billion in paper money uh, very sloppily, and it will lead to severe inflation. So just to demonstrate, by the end of the war, CSA currency will be le uh, less than $0.02 cents to the U.S. dollar, which we will discuss later on during the Reconstruction Union. So when we get into the battles of the war, we're not going to spend too much time addressing um, tactics and things of that, but there are a few that we want to highlight. The first battle of Bull Run is significant simply because of the fact that there was a belief this was a short rebellion that would be quickly stifled. Right. But the Con Confederate States of America actually win. And what this does, it dispels this belief that it will be something that happens quickly. The other thing that is uh, significant about this is people were not prepared for the level of brutality and the, the death tolls and the injuries that were um, 
being caused during this war, and it becomes the bloodiest and most deadly war in our country's history because one, we're fighting each other, but two, the technological advancements in weaponry far outpaced two things, medical's ability and our ability to keep infections from spreading to cause death out on the fields, and two, our military tactics where we just stood in a line and walked towards one another and then fought. So the specifically the rifle, um, Gatling gun. The Gatling gun, as well as you Artillery. have the simple bullet uh, that is a hollow-tipped bullet that caused so much damage when it entered into the human body. Um, these are things that was it was made of soft lead instead of something that would really go pierce through someone. Um, it's the same reason why those bullets are outlawed now today, uh, because of the damage they would do. But the one thing we want to talk about is Winfield, Winfield Scott's strategy. And that is the strategy for the Union against the Confederate States of America. It's called the Anaconda Plan. They wanted to strangle the ability for the Confederate States of America to survive. They wanted to cut off their needed supplies. How to do this? We're going to use the United States Navy to cut off the Mississippi, split the, uh, the Confederates in half, and try and deny any European shipments of goods and services. That is what was the primary strategy early in the war. Now, keep in mind, um, a Union loss is going to be more politically catastrophic for the Lincoln administration than a victory because every single loss that will occur, it will just reinforce the concept of either letting the Confederacy just be on its own mm -hmm. or to negotiate some sort of truce. And in the beginning of the war, there are going to be several blunders, one in which will be the Peninsula Campaign led by George McLennan, uh, one of the generals that has been appointed by Lincoln. He will lose to uh, Robert E. Lee. He will be, ret he will be retreating, um, and, and all this desperate action uh, will force Lincoln to replace him by a man named General John Pope. Uh, at the Second Battle of Bull Run, there will be another CSA victory. Again, this will cause Lincoln and his acolytes to try to re renegotiate a strategy to handle this rebellion. And in Tatum Creek, in Sharpsburg, Maryland, by September 1862, Lee will hope for a victory on Union territory that will convince the Britain to aid the CSA. Think of it like the Battle of Saratoga in the Revolutionary War to convince the French support for us against Britain. Uh, but McLennan will find out about the plan and intercept the CSA advancement. Luckily, this will be the bloodiest single day of the Civil War with over 22,000 casualties. So one of the things that you think about these early blunders and one of the things that Lincoln was really frustrated with was the Union had an overwhelming force. And many of the blunders were a lack of communication between right. Lincoln and wanting his generals to be a little bit more aggressive. And one of the major things he had with McClellan was that McClellan was just too tentative. Because he was supposed to win, he kind of froze up in the pressure of, well, if I take too aggressive a maneuver, it might backfire, we might get right. cut off, we might not be able to get to our supplies. So they ended up being a stalemate. And Lincoln struggles for the first three or four years, two or three years of the war, to find a general that's willing to use the overwhelming force of the Union Army to its best advantage. Some of the more famous Union victories would be at the Battle of Fort Henry and um, Fort Donelson. Uh, we have the Monitor versus Merrimack situation, which is really threatening the Anaconda plan. This is the ironclad ship that was stolen. And then we also have the Battle of Shiloh and Battle of New Orleans. But all of this is really within the thought process of this greater issue of diplomacy that's going on at the same time. 
Throughout the war, Lincoln is trying to connect with the South to try and negotiate peace, have a surrender, and while they're winning these battles, it's not happening. So the fact that it's shifting to and it's going back and forth becomes opportunities where Lincoln's trying to say, this war is going to go on for so long, let's come to the table here. At the same time, though, we have Britain getting involved, and that is what we know as the Trent Affair. Yeah, so James Madison Mason and John Slidell, if you recall, John, uh, John Slidell is the same representative that was sent for the Mexican War. Uh, they're going to be sent on a mission to woo Britain on the side of the Confederacy. So this is the application of cotton diplomacy. Union Navy, will, of course, will capture and intercept the diplomats on board the British liner, the Trent, uh, and bring them back to America. Obviously, Great Britain will be very threatened and angry at this, and they kind of uh, warn that unless these two diplomats are released and sent to Britain, they will actually enter the war. Of course, the Union have no choice but to release them, and Mason and Slidell uh, are going to go to Britain. However, they will ultimately fail to woo the British to join on their side. Confederate raiders uh, during this war as well. Britain will still sell ships to Confederates who spend most of the time raiding Union merchant ships. CSA Alabama will be captured, for instance, over 60 vessels before being sunk off the coast of France. Uh, British will plan on selling these specific layered rams to the CSA. Uh, the U.S. minister to Britain, Charles Francis Adams, however, will convince them not to go or risk going to war with Union. So there's a lot of di diplomatic um, maneuvering during this time. And keep in mind that this would have significantly altered the course of our war had it been not for this man, Charles Francis Adams, who would have who would have known. Maybe Britain would have gotten involved and maybe the CSA would have been in existence. Yeah, they were hoping that the demand for cotton out was so serious and politically detrimental to the uh, British Parliament that they would come to the conclusion to join forces with the South. But fortunately for the Union, the British never got involved. And the failure was largely because of the shortage of southern cotton. They had other places to go. You know, New England, uh, excuse me, the new shipments came from Egypt and India. These new materials were really, our wool and linen are now uh, kind of cutting the demand for de uh, cotton in half. You also have the fact that there's setbacks along the way when they might have been close. The setback at Antietam, and then of course, the Emancipation Proclamation was really a signal to the British realizing who had already abolished slavery, which side are you want to fight on, the side that's trying to end slavery or the side that's trying to continue it. And that was something that they knew would be beneficial, and that's part of why Lincoln did it. And that brings us to the end of slavery. So we also have to talk about Lincoln's personal viewpoints on slavery before we talk about the legislative processes of ending slavery. Um, Lincoln personally disliked slavery. But he was hesitant, again, as we mentioned before, to eradicate it during the war because of, again, fear of border states seceding, uh, the constitutional protections of slavery. If slavery was considered property legally, how could Lincoln afford to um, rationalize confiscating property? And the Dred Scott decision plays into that. Right. The, the current climate, while he was in office, was based off of that interpretation. The outrage of working-class Northerners, the idea of where will these free black people go after being free? Are they going to go up north and steal the jobs of Northern immigrant workers or nativist workers? Um, and he was worried about the election cycle. Any type of premature action could kind of backfire with him and he might be a one-term president. So these are some of the factors that kind of plagued Lincoln's mind during the course of the war. Um, so there are a series of acts that we need to kind of focus on that will kind of lead us from slavery to emancipation. So the first one is a series of acts known as the Confiscation Acts. 
So this man, General Benjamin Butler, as he's moving to the South for the Union, he decides to make the decision to refuse to return any of these slaves um, back to their owners after that the Union takes that land. And he says they are contraband of war. This is in May of 1861, early on in the war. So later that summer, you have a situation where Congress realizes this is a good policy and it's also going to accomplish two things at once. It's going to make it more difficult for the South to provide for their military in terms of resources. So Congress passes the original Confiscation Act authorizing all Union officers to withhold or confiscate property from Confederates. Later that following um, year in 1862 in August, Congress passes the second Confiscation Act, which extends it to not just um, areas that um, to, to be able to withhold or take the slaves, but now they say that we will emancipate slaves. Once the Union officers take that territory, we now free you. So the, the property of any Confederate can be released and emancipated, therefore these slaves can do this. And this is the foundation that leads to the Emancipation Proclamation the following January in 1863. And this the distinction really is this. Lincoln proclaims that all slaves are free outside of Union control. This is the most famous executive action that any president has ever made. But he was waiting for a Union victory to legitimize the order. So this sent out the um, message to all slaves in the South, if you can get to the Union lines, you will be free. And this is something that was distinct because it also sent the message to the rest of the country that this is what we're fighting for. Despite this wonderful proclamation, um, the symbolic like meaning behind it, border states under this proclamation could still keep their slaves, um, but it will, like as Mr. Copeland said, will significantly change and alter the Union objective of the war. We're going from a utilitarian one, uh, keeping the Union together, or bringing back the Union together, to now a moral one. And keep in mind, Lincoln will pass this in 1863 when he has enough political capital to do this. And it's, it's only uh, reserved to the states that are in rebellion. That's right. also important. You, right. you said that without saying that, but that, that's why the distinction needs to be made, is that this is only for those states that we are not in agreement with. And this really is the precursor to the 13th Amendment in 1865. Full emancipation eventually is needed with a constitutional amendment. But the Emancipation Proclamation and the Confiscation Acts that were prior to that set the stage for that to be possible. Um, because of the Confiscation Acts as well as the Emancipation Proclamation, a lot of freedmen are going to be inspired to join the war. So the Emancipation Proclamation alone will see more than a quarter of the slave population free, and almost 200,000 of those free blacks will join the, the war effort. Uh, there will be segregated regiments, uh, such as the 54th in Massachusetts, and over 37,000 of these free blacks will die for their freedom. Now, when we talk about the turning point of the war, because most of the war needs to be said, the underdog, the Southern Confederacy was winning. They had the upper hand. But there are two major battles that shifted to the control of the Union. The first is the Battle of Vicksburg in the spring of 1863. The reason why this is so important is because of the fact that this was part of the Anaconda Plan to take control of this part of Mississippi was really valuable to now control the Mississippi River and cut off the, the Confederacy from the western southern states to the uh, rest of those to the east of the Mississippi. Um, it lasted several weeks and for much of the next hundred years in the deep south on July 4th when the battle ended, when the Confederate states finally surrendered the Battle of Vicksburg, they would have not just a July 4th celebration, but also a sad remembrance for this is what was the beginning of the end for the Confederacy. Then later that summer, you have the Battle of Gettysburg, which was a three-day battle, July 1st through the 4th. 
1863. It was a surprise attack. They weren't supposed to conflict in this part of Pennsylvania. They just happened to stumble upon one another. It was the the bloodiest battle of the war with greater than 50,000 casualties. And the last day when there's a aggressive retreat led by Pickett, General Pickett, Lee was finally forced to retreat to Virginia. And it was the last time that the Union uh, would have to deal with an offensive or an aggressive maneuver by the Southern Confederacy. Lee was forced to retreat and then play kind of keep away to avoid a final confrontation with the Union from that point on. Now that the South is no longer on the offensive, Grant will issue a new order in the command, uh, and the strategy is just a war of attrition. Uh, what that pretty much means is that it will be a complete and total war, making sure that the CSA is going to be fully acclimated and, conti- and, and, and I guess, assumed by the UN, uh, basically take no prisoners. So this type of strategy will be very similar to World War One and World War Two. The general that is responsible for pretty much bringing the South to his knees is a general named William Tecumseh Sherman. Pretty, pretty blandly, the, the, the strategy that he employed was called slash and burn campaign, basically destroying, burning any type of field and plantation that would be utilized as resources to feed the horses, the cavalry, uh, the soldiers. And this had a demoralized effect on the Confederate soldiers as well as the civilian population. From Chattanooga, Tennessee, all the way to Savannah, Georgia, he blew up railroad lines, he sabotaged factories, he confiscated and burned down plantations, and he will eventually take Atlanta in 1864, which will prove to be very helpful in Lincoln's re-election. Um, he will set fire to Columbia, South Carolina in 1865, and the capital and cradle of the Civil War uh, will be literally in flames. Now, the reason why we discuss Williams comes to Sherman so much is that he will be pretty much the reason why the South will be in shambles. And when we talk about Reconstruction, the North will have to kind of pay for uh, the infrastructure or the development of infrastructure that Tecumseh Sherman destroyed during the war. And also rebuild the trust that this is not how you're going to be treated going forward. Right. So part of it was the fear, like Sherman was intentionally trying to punish not just those that were fighting, but everybody who was living in the South. And that created that fear that what are the next group of people coming down here going to do? Interestingly enough, this general will be quoted to have said that war is hell. So that famous phrase is something that William Tecumseh Sherman will be saying uh, despite his draconian methods of executing his war. That brings us to the election of 1864, um, which is critical to determine the future of how the war is going to be handled from the country. The Republicans nominate Abraham Lincoln again, and his platform is that we will continue to go on with this policy of war of attrition, total war, to be able to uh, take the South and then hopefully end it shortly. Uh, And in in order to win over some more of the war Democrats or the loyal Democrats to their side, they renamed their party during this time period as the Unionist Party. If you believe in keeping the Union together, this is the people uh, that you need to elect. He ends up picking Andrew Johnson, who was unique character in that he is the only sitting senator from the South to stay loyal to the Union when the South secedes. He's from Tennessee, and they want to reward his loyalty. Once Tennessee was retaken by the Union, he was appointed as the military governor. And so this creates a unity within the party uh, and also gives more war Democrats a chance to support them. And Lincoln taps him to be his vice presidential candidate. The opposing uh, option for the election would be the Democratic candidate, George McClellan the person who believes there should be a peaceful negotiation, and his campaign slogan is to ditch Lincoln. Well, Lincoln won overwhelmingly. The 
popular vote was 55% to 45%, but the electoral vote was a 212 to 21 landslide. And that brings us to the eventual end of the war. It happens in April of 65, shortly after we have uh, Lincoln's second inaugural. So Richmond falls to the Union, and Lee is forced to finally surrender and retreat. April 9th, Lee is forced to do this at the famous Appomattox Courthouse. Shortly after this, though, and only five days later, sadly, the president is assassinated. John Wilkes Booth will assassinate Lincoln at the Ford's Theater in Washington. Um, the assassination attempt will also be made towards the abolitionists and rad- radical Republican Secretary of State William Seward. Um, this will, of course, anger the North and make them feel like they should be less forgiving to the South. Uh, the impact of Lincoln's death is tremendous. We are now going to have a pow- power shift from Lincoln to Johnson, which will have a, um, an effect on the Reconstruction policy that we will talk about later in the next uh, podcast. Yeah, and, and part of it is that simple trust factor. It's like when you have a strong leader like Lincoln and then you have somebody who they brought in thinking to be a great man who's be number two, all of a sudden is the leader and he's from a southern state, it complicates things. So the effects of the war are dramatic in a lot of different ways. Politically, it, the southern secession sets the um, concept of we have Republicans who have two basic ideologies. And we've talked about this throughout the year. Radicals, moderates, uh, inhabit two different ways of handling this. The moderate Republicans are thinking, we need to be concerned with the white working class, those free soilers from before the war. We need to cater to their needs and their concerns. The radical Republicans are the people who say, no, we need immediate emancipation of slavery and we need to hold the South responsible for what they've done. There need to be consequences. And in reforming the country and readmitting these southern states, we have to think carefully about what the country, what the message we're sending to states that are in rebellion. We don't want to be too nice to them. And during the war, there's going to be, um, as we mentioned before, Lincoln's suspension of certain civil liberties that probably would not be like as greatly um, shown since Adams' Alien and Sedition Acts. Um, you know, because of expediency of the war, he's going to be focused more on prosecuting the war than protecting civil rights. He's going to, uh, an estimated 13,000 people will be imprisoned without trial under suspect of aiding the Confederacy, whether it be spying or uh, distributing um, illegal uh, property or material to the Confederacy or the Confederate cause. There will be some constitutional legitimacy to Lincoln's actions, however, in Article uh, 2, Section 2 of the Clause of the Presidency. It does mention that the president can suspend habeas corpus in times of emergency. Um, This is the justification that Lincoln will cite during the war at the ire and anger of a lot of war Democrats uh, and Copperhead Democrats. Um, Other things such as Supreme Court cases like the ex parte Milligan in 1866, the Supreme Court will rule that the Union government uh, will ultimately act improperly by holding a military trial for civilians in Indiana. So we do have a judicial branch that is checking the power of the presidency, uh, albeit it will be after the war. This is a very typical thing that happens. Um, but we do see our government kind of checking the powers that the founding fathers were kind of afraid of. 
Yeah, so um, the other thing to think about is this, the way this affected everyday American during this time period of the war. And one of the significant ways it does is with the draft. And it's the first draft that we put in place. It's called the Conscription Act of 1863. So halfway through the war, the idea of we need to overwhelm the South also affects the fact that we need more soldiers. So all men between the ages of 20 and 45 are now liable for military service, meaning it is required. And so the only way that a person could get out of it is if you find a substitute, Okay, you, you find somebody usually of a lower social class that will be going on your behalf, or you just pay a $300 exemption fee. So you can see how that creates a social divide and an economic divide within our system where the poor are forced to go and the wealthy can pay off their, um, the, their need or requirement to report for service. This act um, will, will create such tension that will culmin culminate in many urban areas, particularly in New York City. Um, in July of 1863, there will be draft riots. Working class will be so furious that they have to fight a rich man's war that could theoretically free blacks and threaten their own job security that they will actually start to uh, attack uh, upper class or any any free black that they see. They're going to vent their frustrations. And, and unfortunately, about 117 people will die uh, by federal troops who will suppress this riot. Um, of course, this will lead to the temporary suspension for the draft, um, and it's just a sad part in our history uh, that will be seen later on in the Vietnam War. Yes, yeah, I mean, the, the, is something that is difficult for people to uh, equate, but we have this wild riot that spreads and is almost to the point of uncontrollable in New York City, in Manhattan, where this happens. Large amount of Irish immigrants were the ones that were um, the cause of this draft riot, the fact that they could not afford the 300 exemption fee, and the fact in their mind after the, the um, Emancipation Proclamation early in the year, who are the people, what's the reason for this war? Well, it's black people, and that's why they directed that as long with the job security that you mentioned. So the political dominance in this era that the Northern interests had, that the country because of the population concentration in the North, there's this concern going forward that the federal government's supremacy now also might include the supremacy of the North over the South. And it starts to become a fact that we know it's entrenched in precedent with the federal government having supremacy over the state government, but also you have the issue of the abolition of slavery becoming the most important moment and issue in our American democracy. There will also be economic changes during the war that we need to kind of mention, like how the president's power gets consolidated and centralized uh, during a time of emergency crisis. So does fiscal policy. So in order to fund all these union war efforts, they need cash and resources very quickly. So there's going to be a combination of bonds, close to $2.6 billion, the passage of the moral tariff that we'll discuss later, excess ta taxes, as well as income taxes will be needed in order to kind of generate this income. In fact, $430 million will be made in paper currency called greenbacks. This is the first time where the United States is going to try to standardize or create a new, uh, very easy way of um, uh, distributing and, and, and producing mo paper money. This will lead to significant inflation, and the Union, of course, will respond to this inflation in 1863 by creating the first national banking system since Jackson's veto of it in 1830s. This, of course, is going to centralize fiscal policy that will have a huge impact on uh, the, the next 40 years when we discuss the Gilded Age in American society.
Now, um, as we move on to congressional policies that promote economic growth, specifically we have the Moral Tariff Act, 1861. It was a high protective tariff that tried to benefit industrialists. So you're catering to the interests of the North. The Homestead Act of 1862 is to try and promote settlement of the Western Great Plains. And we're offering 160 acres basically free to any family that is going to be willing to farm it for five years. It's uh, an incentive that most American families in the North take advantage as an opportunity to move out to the West. Um, and we're giving away land. Coincidentally, you have to look at the way in which things are given away in our system in an inequitable fashion because most of the people that could apply our Homestead Act, well, the people that were black in the North were denied that opportunity. Um, the Moral Land Grant Act of 1862 also have the issue of trying to maintain the sale of federal land grants. It's to try and make sure we promote agricultural and technical colleges. We're encouraging states to use this to their benefit. Um, it's an, a way to distribute the opportunity to use this land in a positive fashion for the benefit of the country. And then the last one would be the Pacific Railway Act of 1862, which is the final um, moment to really push towards a, the connection of the railroad all the way from the East Coast to San Francisco. And eventually, we, that brings us to the conclusion uh, of this section of the notes, which is the social change. We see women working, participating in factories more than ever before, in a large part because of the war effort required it. Well, that continues as we go forward. Nursing became a new and legitimate occupation for women because of the necessity to try and have that happen out on the battlefield. Well, that continues afterwards. And um, these things play into the women's rights movement that follows in the next generation. And we can't ignore the fact that this war will conclude with the passage of the 13th Amendment, where four million black people will be free and constitutionally protected. But despite this victory, as we will discuss later on, the political and economic oppression of black people will continue to haunt them. And our country, for that matter. Yeah. So um, this is where we will move on to the Reconstruction, which is equally, if not more important to understanding American history than the Civil War because it tells the true tale of what we're all about.